This program is brought to you by the partners of A Root Awakening International. Help others find truth. Support A Root Awakening International today. Was the Garden of Eden the model for the temple? From Genesis to Ezekiel and even in Paul's letters, we find Yehovah's amazing model for his dwelling place on earth and in the hearts of believers. Pastor Matthew Vanderels ties it all together in this awe-inspiring teaching because it's the end of the sixth day, the sun is set, and this is Shabbat Night Live. Shabbat Shalom, Torah fans. Welcome to Shabbat Night Live with Michael Rood. If you were asked to name Yehovah's dwelling place, you might say the tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple in Jerusalem. And if you thought about it a little more, you might say that his dwelling place is in our hearts. Of course, the answer is that his dwelling place is all of these. <laughs> and it all started with the model we see in the Garden of Eden, believe it or not. Matthew Vanderels tells us all about it tonight in the fourth and final episode of Patterns in the Bible. Jehovah's pattern is also found in the way he reckons time, and we've done our best to restore that on the astronomically and agriculturally corrected biblical Hebrew calendar, where we see that tonight is the second Shabbat of the sixth month. And now it's time to say hello to my co-host, the one and only, Tiffany Panaccio. Tiffany Panaccio. <laughs> it's a mouthful. There, there's a lot this of syllables Shabbat there. Shalom. <laughs> Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat <laughs> Shalom. So are the God's dwelling place, uh, yeah, interesting concept how it goes from uh, Eden to the tabernacle, to the temple, to our hearts, and somehow it doesn't change. Right? It's amazing. He's multi-purposeful in all that he does. There was a plan from the beginning and... He fulfills it. Yeah. You had an interesting concept about how, um, did you get that from Matthew? Yeah, that's not mine. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Matt has, and I don't want to portray it wrong, but explains how, you know, we know the enemy makes a counterfeit. So the enemy has false gods with idols that have ears and eyes, but don't see or hear or speak. And the words that are used in the Torah that explain the creation of man show that, his, in, his initial intent was for us to, we are made in the image of God, right? We are meant to be the real images, right? That point people back to Yehovah. When he's dwelling in us, it's like we're his mini-me's here on the earth. Okay, little that, mini-me's. Yeah, yeah kind so of direct people there. back to him. So the opposite of what, you know, idols exactly. can't hear or speak, but we can be his miniature versions of him exactly. that can hear and speak and directly bring people to him exactly. instead of taking all the glory for themselves as an idol would do. Is that, exactly. Is that kind of yep, it? Okay. pretty much. Wow, I didn't even do awesome. the teaching. I got it. I know, sure. yeah, that. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. You got the much better version from that. <laughs> yeah. So that again is tonight. And uh, so there are, now there's only a few days left to get this thing, by the way. Now the store isn't open right now. So, and forgive us, we, you know, we don't really like to talk about this kind of thing on Shabbat Night Live, but we have to because it's the only time we get to talk to you. So just keep it in the back of your mind for after Shabbat. It's the, uh, it's the love gift. And yes. for a gift of $50 or more, you will get this teaching. It's from Mark Fulmer, uh, who also did an episode, not an episode, a whole series on the MichaelRood.tv app yes. about Wuhan. 
Mm-hmm. and what really happened there. And this is sort of like the continuation of that. We talk about pandemic oversight, border control, uh, one world government, you know, single currency, all this stuff. Where is this all coming to? And Mark knows what he's talking about because he was a 20-year bioterrorism expert and he actually did uh, little practice rounds as to what would happen in a pandemic. And then he suddenly realized, wait a minute, What's going on here? And that's when he kind of got out and now he's exposing all that. That's awesome. Yeah, so that is your gift for $50 or more. We have other gifts too, and you can see the commercial uh, after this. uh, And one thing that you mentioned before we mm -hmm. came on the cameras was ShopPay that now you can break up the payments for if you want the love gift or anything else. You know, there are some purchases in the store which are larger and... Yep. Like if you want to buy a shofar exactly, or something like yeah. that. And you can break it up, and I think you get charged every few weeks or something. Yeah, it uh, it's, breaks up into four installments, two weeks apart. So if you get paid every two weeks and you want to you know, donate to, to do the love gift, but you can only do it every two weeks, that's great. You can split it up that way. You can split up the love gift that way. You can mm-hmm. split up a, a shofar purchase or some other big thing you want to do. Yeah. Uh, so very handy to have as well. You can split up anything, actually. You can split up a... $20 DVD. Yeah. <laughs> Can't say I haven't done that. I haven't yeah. used it. <laughs> yeah, but really handy to have just so that, uh, you know, it, it can become manageable. And uh, we just want to thank you, by the way, for your yes. support. Anything you, you know, any donation you make to this ministry, any love gift you get, anything in the store, it all goes to support what we're teaching here. This allows us to do this. And unfortunately, you know, money's involved. They're just the way the world works. And so we, we appreciate you. Thank you for doing that. And uh, we just want to thank you for doing that. Now, we want to invite you to something as well. Uh, Yom Teruah is coming up. So that is coming up real quick. It's uh, less than a month. Gosh. Wow. Wow. September Thanks for the 15 reminder. To, yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're not done. We're not ready yet. September 15 to 17. Uh, hopefully, there's some tickets still available to come here in the studio by the time you see this. You know, go ahead and check. It's at yomteruahcharlotte.com. And uh, you can see there whether you, there are tickets left or not. If there's no tickets to be here in studio because there's only 75 seats, uh, you can still watch online. There's gonna be you know, thousands of people watching online, but only 75 here. Uh, and you're gonna, the one benefit of being here is you get to see uh, everything in between and, and take advantage of the, the meals and all that kind of good yes, stuff. Yes, and uh, just fellowship time. That's one yeah. thing we always, the feedback we get from events is we need more fellowship time. So. And that's what we did. Yeah. That's why you, there's, you know, we have Steve Siefkin and, uh, Matthew Vanderels mm-hmm. and Jake Hilton coming. And those are the only three speakers. Uh, usually I'm speaking too on, on yeah. something to do with health. We didn't do that this time because we want to have more time for people to visit with Michael, exactly. visit with the speakers, and with each other, right? Yes, we have so many amazing partners. We I, Yesterday I was speaking to missionaries that live in the Philippines. Like, there are so many amazing people that are part of this ministry. And just to give everyone else a chance yep. to get to know others and... And there have been instances yeah. where people have met their future spouses oh, yeah. at a Michael Rood event. <laughs> Many. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's always that. Uh, but no, it's it's a great thing coming up. Uh, and also you get to take advantage of uh, on Sunday, if you're here, uh, Michael does Circle the Wagons, which oh, is yeah. basically a sharing time that is not broadcast. Mm-hmm. The broadcast ends on Saturday. So if you're looking to do that, you know, come here to do that as well. But anyway, so it's all about... Uh, Yom Teruah and preparing the way. Prepare the way is the theme. And that means prepare our hearts, prepare everything. Just get ready because he's coming. I mean, if the world's actions are not enough, look in the Bible and say, hey, you know, when these things start to happen, look up because your redemption draws nigh. And that's what Yom Teruah is all about. Yep. Indeed. Okay, so we're going to see uh, some very interesting stuff from Matthew Vanderell's tonight. So let's take a look at that. Here is a little snippet. 
So you have land, translated as earth, um, and you have this place inside of earth or inside of the land called Eden, and then you have a garden that's planted in Eden where man rests from God and also works the garden. Um, and inside the garden, you have the tree of life. And this is much like the tabernacle. All right, there you go. Was the Garden of Eden the model for the temple? From Genesis to Ezekiel and even in Paul's letters, we find Jehovah's amazing model for his dwelling place on earth and in the hearts of believers. So Matthew Vanderell's ties it all together next, but first, stay with us for The Kiddush with Michael Rood. Does a global cabal fit into the prophecies of the Bible? Or is it nothing more than a conspiracy theory concocted by overzealous believers? Does this situation we're in play into the Bible? Like, does a global cabal fit into the Bible in your mind? Absolutely, Scott. The New World Order, all of this, is part of Bible prophecy. Author, teacher, and 20-year bioterrorism expert Mark Fulmer presents The Global Cabal, the mind-boggling depths of a plan to corral the world into a one-world government, straight out of the book of the Revelation. You won't find this teaching anywhere online, but we'll give it to you as our thanks for supporting A Root Awakening International. When you donate $50 to this ministry in August, we'll send you The Global Cabal with Mark Fulmer on DVD or Blu-ray. Donate $100 and we'll send you The Global Cabal plus an authentic replica of a half-shekel coin from the first century A.D. Donate $300 and we'll send you the teaching, the replica half-shekel coin, plus a beautiful handcrafted glass and brass sculpture of the Hebrew word chai, meaning life. These gifts are a limited time offer from Michael Root to thank you for your support. Make your donation today and receive the $50 gift the $100 gift, or the $300 gift. Get these exclusive thank you gifts when you make a donation to support A Root Awakening International, only in August. Use your cell phone to scan the QR code on your screen to donate now, or call 888-766-3610, or get your gifts online with a donation at monthlylovegift.com. The night of the Last Supper, Yeshua took our tone, our tone, leavened bread, and he blessed the Most High, and he broke the bread and said, this represents my body, which will be broken for you. He took the cup, and he blessed the Most High, and said, this represents the renewed covenant in my blood. The following day, the following day, on the 14th of the month of the Aviv, there were two large loaves on the wall of the temple. And when they took the first loaf down, after that, no more bread, no more leavened bread was eaten. Then when they took the second loaf down, that's when all of the leavened bread in the city of Jerusalem and everywhere else was completely expunged. It was burnt in the fire. That was the rehearsal that was done the following day, just before the Passover lambs were sacrificed in preparation for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But Yeshua represents in this very thing, 
in the breaking of the bread that we do in the Kiddush, in the sanctification, every Shabbat, we remember that his body was broken for us. By his stripes, we were healed. And in the taking of this cup, as we say this prayer in thanksgiving to Almighty God, Baruchatah Yehovah Eloheinu Melech HaAlam, Borei Pri Hagafen. Yeshua said, this is the renewed covenant in my blood. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Every meal, any time, any Sabbath, any feast, any time that you need to remember his broken body and shed blood, we do this in remembrance of him. In this series, we've seen some themes in the Bible, specifically the Garden of Eden and Revelation. Where is that leading? All the things in between. How do these things connect through the Bible? Connects in amazing ways. And now we're gonna look at something that we've, we're sort of hinted at in the, in the Garden of Eden, but mostly it had to do with Israel. They had a first one, they had a second one, rumors of a third one, and then there's this final one somewhere in the mix. We're talking about the temple with Matthew Vanderels. Welcome back, Matthew. Uh, honored to be here as usual. And this is, uh, again, talking about the patterns, that the topic that makes the Bible, the Bible so beautiful is recognizing that it is a narrative. Right. And that all of the stories inside of it are interconnected. Um, and uh, they all uh, create uh, the trajectory, the, the story that, that leads to Yeshua. And, and everything points us that way, including the temple. Yep. Now, now the speaking temple. of the temple, I think most folks watching the show will realize, okay, yeah, I'm supposed to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? We each have, sure. right? We're the, we're the, we're the residing, the, the home of the, uh, the Holy Spirit. Yes. But we had a tabernacle in the desert, and, and uh, then we had a first te temple and a second temple. And you've mentioned in previous teachings that God always wanted to dwell with his people. Yes. It yes. wasn't, get away from me or you shall be my subjects. It's, it's, it, well, he is our king, but it's still, he wants to be with us. Yes. So how does this relate to the temple? I'm not sure we're gonna get to the whole of what you have today on this topic. We might have to continue, but uh, with that, I'll, I'll hand it over to you and, and tell us about the temple. For sure, so the temple is kind of a big deal. It is another foundational, all these themes are foundational. It's another foundational theme uh, pattern in the scriptures. And uh, we see it continue to occur right there in Genesis 1 which I'll present as a temple inauguration text um, of God inaugurating the place where he's going to dwell. Mm -hmm. And I believe Ezekiel actually attests or presents uh, Adam as the high priest that is mediating in this kind of cultic fashion in the garden. It's kind of neat. Um, it's, it's, it's Ezekiel's Adam and Eve story, except for Eve isn't mentioned, but regardless. Uh, and so we have this, this temple theme starting there, it echoes, it echoes, it echoes, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we see it, just like everything else, we see it reach its maximum impact in the New Testament with us. Mm. And so it's, we always talk about, yes, well, I'm the temple or I'm, my body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that. And we read that as if, okay, you know, that's not a big deal. Like, it's a big deal, but, but if we truly understand 
the background and everything it took in the narrative and all of the weight that that carries when we finally arrive to this declaration that Yeshua says, you know, he's speaking about his body becoming the temple or Paul says, don't you know that you are the temple or believers are the temple? It is, uh, it's nerve wracking when you fully understand the weight of that. And so the temple is mentioned in the Bible uh, as uh, it, it's become the, it became the centerpiece and the focus for uh, the Judean or Israel's religion in the story of the Old Testament. Like that's really, uh, there was a huge orbit around the place where God dwells. It was a symbolic place that of course represented God's uh, dwelling among his people, as we've said in prior uh, episodes. And um, it, it was in some aspects, if you will, seen as a type of stargate that reflected uh, or created a connection between the heavens and the earth. There was this idea that the gods dwelled up high in the mountains in the ancient world. Um, and then if you could, and this may be off track, but hey, why not? Uh, when you walk into a pagan temple, what did you typically see there? Right, you have an altar, maybe you alter, but what is I've there? never been in one, so. No, no it's, it's a fun, you should go. Uh, well, you know, typically you would have an idol, right? An image of the God. And so everyone knew that that image of marble or stone or wood or whatever, uh, gold, wasn't the actual deity, but they understood it as a proxy, as because that is the, the proxy in which the deity can manifest itself through. So the deities up on the mountain, up in heaven, whatever, the faux reality where these pagan gods dwell. Uh, but if you build a temple, then it creates kind of like a stargate, if a sci-fi reference, uh, where the presence of the deity can be manifest there. And that's something that was so radical and unique about the Israelite religion is their temple had no statue. It had no image, no selim is what the Hebrew word is. Um, it had no image because God already had his images that he established in Genesis 1. Mm. So when mankind was created as God's image, it wasn't simply the reflection or a mirror reflection. In the ancient Israelite thought, you are the selim. You are the proxy in which God's presence is manifest through into creation, into the world. So that's not just a New Testament thing. That's always no, been. No, that's always been from Genesis 1. That's what it means to be an image bearer of God. You bear his image. You are his Selim. Um, and so it's just, it's kind of neat to, to understand that. But all the same, um, it was still understood as the place where God's presence dwelled. So God is up in the heavens or up, up there. And we have the holiest of holies where we have the ark, which is a throne. It's the mercy seat, right? And his glory uh, manifest above that. Um, and so, yeah, it was a very, it was a very important place. Uh, and it was a place that was revered. It was sacred. It was holy. It was set apart. Um, and so by the, uh, by the time we get to the first century when Yeshua, Jesus is born and walked out his ministry, the temple was kind of a really big deal, uh, especially after King Herod did all of his renovations on it and made it shiny and really big. Um, the, temp the second temple went through a lot of renovations, um, but we'll talk about that here in a bit. And so, um, so we have one writing from a first century historian named Josephus, and he writes uh, in his, uh, in his uh, uh, work, The Jewish Wars, he says that the outside walls of the temple in those days were covered with so much gold that they were blinding in fiery splendor at sunrise. Hmm. So we don't, all we have are these descriptions, but can you imagine? So King Herod loved to show off. And so we, so much gold that when the sun rose, 
it was as if the mountain of God was on fire, hmm. which is an image that is biblical, if you will, right? Uh, Mount Sinai, here it is, but it's not Mount Sinai, it's Mount Moriah, it's in Jerusalem and symbolically because of the gold. So it was a beautiful thing and it was, it was revered. And this was the attitude. Um, and so, you know, this was the attitude in the atmosphere that was revolving around the temple in Jerusalem during the time when the New Testament was, was, was written and Yeshua was walking the earth. And so again, imagine the shock. Imagine the shock when Paul is writing to uh, the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3.16, and he says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Like, what? <laughs> Wait a second. That's a bold, radical, almost heretical thing to say here. Like, me? Yeah. How could God's people be identified with such an incredible piece of architecture? Well, in order to answer that question, we'll need to dive back into the story of the Bible once again. And uh, like I said, the temple has kind of a lengthy history in the story of uh, the Bible. Um, before the temple in Jerusalem was built by King Solomon, um, there was, of course, a tabernacle that was built and constructed during the time of Moses, um, and then a, a semi-permanent place at Shiloh in between there. Uh, but it was made up of three main sections that we're most of us are familiar with. We have the outer courts where the brazen altar stood and then you would go into the complex and there would be another altar, the altar of incense with the menorah representing the tree of life and the showbread. And this was the holy place. And so the priests could uh, work and tend to that area. And then there was a, an inner sanctum, a, a most holy place, the holiest of holies uh, with a huge curtain on it. And there was the Ark of the Covenant and you weren't, around, you weren't allowed to occupy that place. That was a once in a year, uh, once a year place where the high priest would go in to make atonement for it. Um, but these three different spheres. And, um, and before God called, of course, the house, uh, his house a temple, um, he, was in the temp he was in the tabernacle. But before God was in the tabernacle, he was on the mountain. God likes to move. Mm. He's nomadic. So he has a temple, we were in a tabernacle. Before that, he was on the mountain, Mount Sinai. That's where the burning bush was when Moses found it, the holy mountain. And, uh, and before God was on a mountain in the middle of the wilderness as his residence, God was in a garden with Adam and Eve. And that was the place where heaven and earth were united. Mm. They kissed, if you will. And so guess where we're gonna go uh, in the Bible to begin this pattern once again of the temple, Genesis 1. And so we know the chapter, um, and it's the short story about how God would do whatever it would take to dwell with mankind. And that's what it culminates to, right? Mankind is the crown of creation that he places. Um, he's finally made a place where he can uh, convene with mankind. And of course, the seventh day he rests. Um, and that's his character. That's how we understand his character. So God spends six days making this habitat for people like you and me that he wants to dwell with. And then he rests, right? And uh, of course, Genesis 2. Uh, Genesis 2 gives, it's interesting uh, from a literary sense, we have Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is actually almost like a different creation story. There are some mm -hmm. things that don't quite match up and there's ways to people try to resolve that. But um, it's basically the creation story, but from the point of view of being on earth looking up, it's kind of neat. Uh, so here we have... Uh, uh, Genesis 2, and, and here's what it tells us in chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 8. It says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put man, rested man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for the food. And in the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
A river watering the garden flowed from from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headways. The name of the first was Pishan, the winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there was gold, um, the second river of the Gihon, and, and so on and so forth. So you have this source of water that's coming up uh, in this place, and it's watering all the earth. All of the water, the living water, comes from this place where God resides. So you have land, translated as earth, um, and you have this place inside of earth or inside of the land called Eden, and then you have a garden that's planted in Eden where man rests from God and also works the garden. Um, And inside the garden, you have the tree of life. And this is much like the tabernacle Mm. where we have an outer court, the land. Uh, You have a more sacred place, if you will, uh, which is, you know, the, the, the holy place, which is the place where the menorah was. And the menorah represents the tree of life. Like God told Israel how to make the menorah and it needs to have leaves and almond buds on it. It's, it's the tree that emits the light of God's presence, right? It's the tree of life. Uh, and then you have, of course, the most, most holy place or sacred place, the holiest of holies. Um, love that. And you also have water of life that is emerging from Eden. Um, the life-giving water. And so where does water, where, where are springs form? They're formed at the bottom of mountains, right? Mm-hmm. Water comes down the mountain, forms spring. And so this is where we get the idea as, uh, as with all ancient, ancient, uh, ancient Near Eastern thoughts <clears throat> or conveyor, gods were on the mountain. So we kind of get this idea that this is a garden mountain that's up high, it's lifted up and the waters of life run down it to water creation. And, um, Again, we tend to simply read these chapters of Genesis as creation stories, which they are, um, but it's also, I would suggest, a temple inauguration, uh, much like what um, King Solomon did when he built the temple. This is an inauguration of the place that God is going to dwell, and he has priests, mankind, working it. And we actually find a portrayal that jives with that in Ezekiel 28. And this is Ezekiel 28, and it starts in verse 13. And this is a section of uh, Ezekiel that is a prophecy against the king of Tyre. And traditionally, uh, in many church traditions, it's viewed as the story of Satan and Satan falling from God. Um, But I would suggest, I would offer an alternative view that it's actually about Adam. There's nothing in there that Hmm. specifically suggests that it's Satan. Uh, And let's read it and we can see the details. And starting in verse 13, here's here's what Ezekiel's vision is, Ezekiel's Adam story. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Um, Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared for you. You were the anointed guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from the fiery stones. And so you, you, you get this image where you have the, the temple of God in Eden. It's the mountain of God, fiery stones, whatever that is, pyrotechnics going off. And you have this guardian cherub, this emissary of God, if you will, um, who is covered in the stones like the high priest. Mm-hmm. And he's ministering to God. And remember how we, we spoke before on the result, what humanity looks like when they take the fruit, right? The self-seeking agendas at the expense of others, violence toward others. And here, the wickedness that is found in man or Adam is widespread trade and you were filled with violence and you sinned. Mm. So it's the same type of 
jiving. So Ezekiel goes on to elaborate that the sins of this Adam-type figure that desecrated the sanctuaries and caused him to be cast out uh, were those. Eden is a temple, and this was his sanctuary, right? That's what he was cast mm. out of. Now, um, again, we discussed this before. Um, where was the entrance uh, to the garden or Eden? Like, what side was it on? It was on the east, no, east. East side. East side. East side. Okay. So Genesis 3.24 um, is where it says that. And then again, where did the tabernacle face? The door of the tabernacle faced east. east. So we have this parallel that's going on here, this connection. That's interesting. When every, someone is going east in the Bible, they're walking away from the presence of God, away from the temple, away from the garden, if you will. And so, uh, again, the people traveled eastward and built the Tower of Babel. Um, and Babylon is east of Israel. And so that was the direction that Judah was forced out to go into exile. And that's the story of Adam and Eve, constant humanity being pushed out away from God because of their sin. And so the tree of life stood in the middle of the garden and the fruit of it gives life forever. It's eternal life. Um, same image we have in the New Jerusalem in Revelation, right? Right. The tree of life that is there. Why does it give life? Well, Proverbs chapter three uh, says that God's wisdom is the tree of life for us and all who would grasp hold of it. Uh, this is what the priests saw inside the tabernacle when they worked daily by the light of the menorah, the light of God. Um, and, uh, and I just think that is so compelling because Ezekiel has a symbolic depiction of this temple at the end. You know, you mentioned before the, the temple that might come again, the third temple mm -hmm. that Ezekiel uh, projects where Ezekiel starts, um, the book of Ezekiel starts with something called apocalyptic literature. And it also ends the same way. That's at least my view on the Ezekiel's temple. It's an apocalyptic view, more symbolic than literal. But how it's described is incredible because it's this huge temple, so massive. And one detail is, is that water begins flowing from it. Hmm. And Ezekiel, the prophet, is brought to the front of the temple and the water is coming up to like its toes, it's leaking out. And the farther he walks away from this temple in Ezekiel's vision, at the very end of Ezekiel, um, the deeper the water gets. So the farther he gets away, he comes up to his knees and the farther he gets away from the temple, it's like divine, de denying physics here. Um, and this water hits everything that it touches and everything blossoms. And it hits uh, any salt water and it purifies it. It's just this living water that is gushing out of this temple. Um, and the, because uh, temples have springs. The Gihon Spring waters um, beside the Kidron Valley in Jerusalem. They're the ones that, that's the, the, the spring that feeds the pool of Siloam. Um, it's sprung up under the Temple Mount. It's the same thing, right? And here is what, uh, the author of Psalm 36 says about that. It says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, temple, mm -hmm. and you give them drink from the river of your delights. And that word delights is literally Edens. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we do see light. And so as we're gonna discover, there's something about this temple water, the water that comes forth from the place that God dwells, and the water that brings forth life and substance that cannot be found anywhere else. Um, and, uh, and it's gonna continue the motive. And I know we're kind of dense right now, but we're about to start flying uh, through the rest of this theme. All right, so we'll hang on to that. We'll come back. Thank you for making this teaching possible on the temple. Very fascinating stuff. I'm enjoying it so far. I hope you are too. And uh, it's 
due to donations that this happens. So someone donated so that you could see this now. Will you donate so that others can see this into the future? We'll give you a couple minutes. Thank you in advance. Well, thank you for your support. It's because of your support we can talk about things like water coming down from Eden, from the temple. Does it represent spirit? What is this? So there's something yes. about this water. So water, the, the water, the living water, waters of life, came from Eden, the mountain garden where God dwelled in the Garden of Eden. And the same thing comes forth from not only uh, the temple in Jerusalem, but also the eschatological temple in Ezekiel. And so now that we've kind of hammered uh, the tabernacle temple, the history of it, um, going to try to get to more the, the future theme and what it has to do with Yeshua and the prophecies that all of this ties into. But so real quick, it, Israel leaves Egypt, right? And they go out to the wilderness. Um, and before the tabernacle was made, they come to the mountain of God. That's what it's called in Ezekiel 3.1. It's the same phrase that Ezekiel, uh, Exodus 3.1 calls it the mountain of God. It's the same phrase that Ezekiel calls it in Ezekiel 28. So they come to this mountain, right? And just like in the tabernacle, Mount Sinai also has three different grades of holiness, sections on it. Hmm. Kind of like an outer court, inner court, but holiest of holies. Um, they have three different sections of increasing holiness. And you have the majority of the Israelites, they can stay at the bottom of the mountain, right? Mm -hmm. Just surround in the bottom, don't touch it. You can come close, but don't touch it. And then the priest and the 70 elders, if you remember, they were allowed to go up to the middle of the mountain, hmm. right? Halfway there, but no more. Um, and, uh, but only one was allowed to go to the very top of the mountain and directly experience the presence of God. Um, and so just like the high priest, Moses, right? And it's the same pattern, uh, of course, that gets implemented into the tabernacle that's coming next in the temple in Jerusalem. Um, but notice the difference in the story. So we have, we have two similar stories. In Eden, we have this temple garden mountain that's taking place. And of course, everywhere else, we have uh, the tabernacle and temple. In Eden, the tabernacle or the temple is built uh, in the form of the garden so man could dwell with God. But now in the Exodus, he's commanding the tabernacle to be built so that he can dwell with them. Okay. All right. Yep. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to the whole motif or pattern of uh, heaven and earth being ripped away from each other. God being told, you stay up there, we'll stay down here. And the rescue mission where heaven and earth are going to be reunited once again, where the kingdom of God is going to come crashing into earth once again and overtake it. There's something about this tabernacle or temple that's, that God wants to be built that uh, represents God breaking back into creation after mankind has pushed him away. And so that's kind of the relevance uh, of what's taking place here in the Exodus. Um, and so, yeah, the, the function of heaven and earth, um, you know, that's, that's, that's always the pursuit. Uh, in, in, in Leviticus 26, 11, God speaks and he says, I will put my dwelling place among you. I will not abhor you. I will walk with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. We're familiar with this verse. He repeats it in Deuteronomy. This is the plan of God. Uh, because the Lord your God walks in your midst um, to deliver you and to give you up to your enemies, therefore your camp must be holy because I walk among you. Uh, and even in 2 Samuel 7, 6, for I have not dwelled in a house since the day I brought up the children out of Egypt, even to this day, but I have walked in the tent and a tabernacle. God is walking among his people in the tabernacle. But where was the first place that he walked? And I'm beating this dead horse for a reason. <laughs> he walked in the garden. God walks among his people. God walks among the tent. Um, 
and that's the trajectory. That's where we're launching from. How will God's glory one day not be trapped in a box? How will God's glory one day be like it was in Eden, where it overflows outward? How will the command to be fruitful and multiply be fulfilled, if you will? Hmm. So, in Garden of Eden, I ask you this. So, 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 mankind was created, humans were created, and they were told to reign and rule over creation, over the animals, subdue it, mm-hmm. and they were told to go out, subdue creation, and be fruitful and multiply. Was mankind expected to leave the garden? Uh, yes. Away from the presence of God? It would seem so. There was guarded with a, a sword, a flaming yeah, yeah. sword. Well, before that, before they before fell. That. Okay. Before they fell, were they expected to go leave the garden, leave the presence of God so they could go subdue creation, or was the intention to take the garden with them hmm. and expand it out? Right? Because there's a prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 where King Nebuchadnezzar, the king who destroyed the first temple, right, uh, and brought all the residents of Judah into captivity, he, uh, he begins having dreams that disturb him. Uh, and he wants someone to interpret it, uh, of course, as you would. And uh, Daniel comes in and interprets it, and he repeats the dream back to him. And then he, you know, he tells him what it is. It's a prophecy, and it's not a new prophecy. It's a Genesis 1, 2, and 3 prophecy. Uh, and it's about the expansion of God's temple, the place where he dwells over creation. Um, and essentially, what he says in Daniel 2 is, is uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this vision of this big statue and it has different types of clay feet and then iron and gold, so on and so forth and all these different metals. Uh, and it represents the empires of, of uh, the empire. To sum it up, it represents empire, uh, the grasp of power for man for different empires and of course, culminating with Nebuchadnezzar. And then a rock flies out of nowhere. It just comes, an asteroid, an asteroid comes out of, out of the sky and crushes this statue. And it's like, okay, that's pretty cool. God was playing like, you know, marbles or something and knocked down Nebuchadnezzar's statue. But what's interesting is, uh, is, is what happens after. Because after the rock hits the statue, it begins to grow. Hmm. Like, I mean, it's kind of like the blob, right? But it's, it's God's rock. And it begins to grow and continue growing. And it continues to grow into a mountain that overtakes creation. Um, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And it represents God's kingdom. Um, so here's what it says in verse 44 of Daniel chapter two in the explanation. It says, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and trustworthy. So he has this rock that's said to not to be cut by hands. Wait, so Bible nerd, Bible nerd moment real quick. And you may know this, I'm sure you guys do as well. Um, where else do we see stones that are not supposed to be cut by human hands? Uh, when making an altar. At the tabernacle. The tabernacle. Exactly. Good job, right? Um, that's exactly what uh, Hebrews chapter nine, verse 11 says. But when Christ is high priest of good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that was not made with human hands, right? So we mm-hmm. have that connection of the spiritual tabernacle as well as the tabernacle on earth, uh, not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not part of this creation. 
So we have the rock from heaven, not made with human hands, is going to take out the kingdoms that have spread over God's creations and corrupted creation, God's good creation, the beasts of Daniel 7 and in Revelation. And this rock is going to destroy them all. But this rock is not only gonna destroy all of the empires, that corrupt creation, it's going to grow into mm. this mountain. It's going to expand out. Um, and this mountain is going to fill the entire earth. That's kind of, gives me goosebumps a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we know the New Jerusalem in Revelation is depicted with a big wall, uh, but the gates are open all the time. And there's another prophecy of the New Jerusalem, which is, of course, the dwelling place of God in Zechariah chapter three. And this New Jerusalem is depicted as not having any walls hmm. because it consumes so many nations and people and animals. It's as if it's constantly growing. It can't have walls or else everyone it acquires can't fit hmm. in it. And I believe this is the trajectory of God's kingdom. It was always supposed to spread. This rock, this stone is this future chief cornerstone that will be the expanding temple, expanding kingdom of God. That's what Psalm 118 says. It says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done this very day. Let us rejoice. Here, because of Daniel, we get a glimpse that the temple is more than just a building or a tent or a mountain in the story of God. The temple is, is, is pointing us to the true rock that will grow and fill the earth. And of course, as believers, we know who that is. That's Yeshua. And the irony, the irony of it all is what we'll see is where does this rock strike first? It actually strikes the physical temple in Jerusalem. Hmm. Um, throughout Israel's history, even in the first century, the temple had went from a place of reverence and symbolism, a place where God makes his dwelling place among his people, and um, it, it, it was made into an idol. Let's just put it bluntly. It became an idol for the people of Judea. Um, it was a way of harnessing and controlling God's power for your own game to lord it over the people. It's what the priests did. It's what the kings did. It's what we haven't stopped doing ever since, even uh, with Yeshua. We do it in our churches today. We've right. done it with empires. We take the most powerful things we can get our hands on, the name of God, and we weaponize it to control other people. And it was no different in the first century with the temple. Um, it was a way to manipulate them. And, uh, and, and in Matthew 21, it says that Yeshua enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, right? And her cult as a new king. He enters the temple and he overthrows the tables. He sees the temple as something that has become a place where others can exploit and take advantage of the weak. Everything that is antithetical to God's reign, uh, that is the epitome of everything the Bible's against, and he instead begins healing people in the temple. And the chief priests, the commissioned mascots of God's kingdom, um, and the teachers of the law, the most learned of Torah and the Bible, they see all of these wonderful things is what it says that Jesus is doing. And the children are shouting to him saying, Hosanna, son of David. Jesus overthrows the tables in the temple and begins healing people in the temple. And Yeshua is giving the leaves of healing of the Eden of the temple, like portrayed in Ezekiel 47, that like he's giving that out. Um, and the people who thought themselves the most righteous, the most faithful, the most loyal, 
the most qualified to represent God to the world, they were indignant when they saw him do this. Why? Because they found heaven on earth in using God to suppress other people instead of showing God's love and using the Bible to give them power over others and elevate themselves. Man, and this is the place where the rock is going to strike first. Hmm. Right? And so they're indignant. They're indignant against Yeshua. And so how does Yeshua respond? Well, in the temple, he tells a parable about farmers who were put in charge of the master's vineyard. And they end up killing the son of the master because they know the son is going to inherit the vineyard and is a threat to their power of taking over the vineyard. And this is what he says in verse 42. Jesus said to them, surely you have read in these scriptures, and he quotes Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. The Lord did this and it is wonderful to us. And then he turns to them and he says this. He says, so I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and it will be given to people who do the things God actually wants to do in his kingdom. The person who falls on this stone that Psalm is speaking of, the person that falls on this stone will be broken and on whomever that stone falls, that person will be crushed. Unlike Matthew and Mark, John intentionally moves the chronology, I believe, around of when Jesus overturns the tables in the temple. Um, Instead of it occurring at the end of Yeshua's ministry, as in Matthew, uh, John seems to begin his ministry with this. And here is what John says um, when, uh, John John reflects on what Yeshua says in John uh, when he walks into the temple. And this is what he, he tells his disciples. It says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And of course, his disciples are like, what are you talking about? This this temple has taken 46 years to build and you're gonna raise it up in three days. And there's a little footnote here in verse 21, uh, but the temple he had spoken of was his body, was his body. John's focus is retelling the story of Yeshua as being this new temple that is coming. This is the rock that is slamming toward the empires of the earth that is going to destroy him. Yeshua is the chief cornerstone that the builders rejected that is going to grow into the mighty mountain of God. And here the first place it is striking, personified as the son himself is the temple, the physical temple of God. Hmm. And just the irony of that is just so powerful, um, so powerful. And then he continues speaking that John, you know, again, John's focus has to do with this temple theology of Yeshua. Um, And in John chapter seven, we are speaking about uh, the, the Feast of Tabernacle, the Feast of Tabernacles that Yeshua goes to. And in verse 37, here's what he says uh, when Yeshua is in the temple. It says, on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And it has a footnote, or commentary says, when he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him, but the spirit had not yet been given. So if we believe in Yeshua, then the rivers of living water will flow out from us. But where's the source? Where's the source? He's the source of living water that breaks into the rivers and flows out to us. That's all Eden language. Hmm. Yeshua's tapping into the the pattern at the very beginning and picking up all of the echoes along the way. And he's saying, you know what? This 
that maybe there's not gonna be this eschatological physical temple at the end. I know some people have a problem with that. It's just, I'm compelled to believe that Yeshua is the final fulfillment of everything the temple was supposed to be. The fulfillment of God's presence dwelling on earth, heaven consuming earth, um, dwelling among mankind. And he says he's the rock that's gonna grow into the temple, that's gonna overtake the world. Says he's the chief cornerstone. Says blatantly he is the temple and he is the source of the living water that we see not only in Eden, but that Ezekiel tells us about. And uh, I think that's just so bold of John representing Yeshua's words and actions this way, because it's so exciting at the same time. Anyone who drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. Love that, love that. At Yeshua's trial in Matthew, Matthew chapter 26, the accusation comes against uh, Yeshua that gets him killed. Mm -hmm. um, and that is that he said he would destroy the temple and raise it back up. It's a very topic, it's a touchy topic, you know? And, uh, and he's nailed to his new throne at that, at not long after that. He's nailed to his new throne. He is exalted up. He is proclaimed king with a sign above his head and continuing this same theme of God's temple, personified Eden among us, the giver of living water. John alone emphasizes that a Roman soldier took a sphere, a spear, not a sphere, a spear. Um, the same John that alone emphasized Yeshua, first thing he does is going into the temple. The John that emphasized Yeshua, this I am the one who brings living water. He is the one that emphasizes the Roman soldier that took the spear and shoved it in the side of Yeshua. And of course, outflowed blood and water. It did not dribble out. What in a drip, drip, drip. It, it did not just squirt out. It didn't run out. It says it flowed out. That same language that we mm. read about the living water that flows from the temple. And what makes the waters of Eden so life-giving? I believe John answers the question for us. The waters of Eden are life-giving because of the blood of the lamb. That's what the depiction here is. And so the question is, after all of that dense study and all of the themes of the temple and all of the echoes here and there and there and there and there from Eden to being trapped in a box to a temple to the prophecy of the box being broken open and overtaken to the world, how, how will we find ourselves in him, in Eden? How will we find ourselves reflections of that? Well, we find ourselves the place where he dwells. That's what Paul says. And so we have this paradox uh, that was prominent in the, uh, the forms in the early church. Um, Yeshua is the true place of God's presence. He is the true temple, the true Eden. But we are being transformed into that image, as Paul says. We are the imitators, his ambassadors, which means that the temple that is supposed to be Yeshua, his body is the temple, well, it's expanding, right? Mm -hmm. Eden's expanding. And just like carrying the cross and the power of the cross doesn't just stop with Yeshua, Eden and the expansion of God's presence doesn't just stop with Yeshua. It is given to us. The waters flow from him into us and then through us into the rest of the world. Therefore, 1 Corinthians 3.16 don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in your midst? 
So our job now is to continue the expansion of the rock that is taking out empires. Every earthly empire today will be overtaken. It will be toppled by a greater kingdom. Um, and that's something, I read something the other day, it said the greatest, the greatest nation on earth is not the United States of America, uh, is not China, it's the kingdom of God. Hmm. Because the kingdom of God is among you even now. The reign of God permeates through us, followers of Yeshua, as we establish the embassy of heaven in every step that we take, in every interaction that we have, in every relationship we're involved in. Um, and I think that's the impact of the theme of the temple. That's the charge, is that when we walk out those doors, we are representing the place that God's dwell, God dwells. And are we going to do it? Or are we going to be like the Pharisees or the priests and the teachers of the law in the first century that weaponized it mm. to use for their own game? So yeah. freely you have received, freely give. Yes, yes. Of, of the spirit that he's given us and that whole temple in the Garden of Eden in the first place. Just flow, keep flowing out. And keep with no flowing end. out, yeah. All right. Keep flowing out. Matthew, thank you so much for no. being here. We hope to have you back again and teach us some more very interesting uh, concepts about the Bible. I'd love to, yeah. It's an honor. And in the meantime, if folks ever come to Charlotte, where can they go to uh, come to your congregation on Shabbat? Sure, we are at foundinintruth.com, our website. You can find out more information about us there and our address. We're, we meet at a church located at 1689 Springsteen Road in Rock Hill, South Carolina. So yeah, All come right. by, check us out, 11 a.m. on Shabbat. Okay. And we'd love to have you. Very good. All right. Well, thank you for joining us and thank you for joining us. And until next time, uh, we bid you Shabbat Shalom and hope you can meet with Matthew at his congregation as well on Shabbat. Until then, Shabbat Tov. Mm -hmm.